0: Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 63. Psalm 63. It begins a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. This is God's inspired and therefore inerrant an word. Uh, let us gather around it to warm our souls. God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh Faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul To destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for the jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of the liars will be stopped. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we ask for Your Spirit to open now Your Word. May You shine Your light from it into our lives. And in that application that You make, may we be transformed in our thinking and feeling and living. Make us more like Christ, we pray. In His name, amen. The sometime warden of Tyndall House in Cambridge, Of Psalm 63 says this, Here, once more, the worst has brought out David's best in words as it did in deeds. David's life was parabolic. It was a great parabola. It moved from a lowly estate to an ascendancy of power and in his latter years back again in so many ways down. Both at the beginning and end of his days, David found himself wandering in the wilderness. Early in his life, he was fleeing Saul. He would run, he would hide, he would run again, all the while hoping in God, hoping that his promise to have him One day as king, for which he had been anointed by Samuel, that that promise of God would show itself true. And then later in life, he fled his son Absalom, his rebellious son of whom you can read in Second Samuel 15. You see, the wilderness journey was more informed. It was more mature the second time around. He did not run as a youth and hide under a rock or in a cave. He marched away from his capital under the hand of God's heavy judgment. But with the spiritual maturity of perspective, he knew that he was experiencing the Lord's chastisement. And he was sure that God who had been faithful all his life, even in spite of his own unfaithfulness would keep His Word and would restore His kingdom. The original heading in Psalm 63, which is given here, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah, could begin a psalm about either his early days fleeing to Judah or his latter days. But in verse 11, the matter is set for us. It reads, "...but the king..." shall rejoice in God. And so we know that it is his latter end, after he has been enthroned, suffering the difficulty, personally, politically, and spiritually, of being run out of town and having to wait upon the Lord. This is a song of trusting God pinned under the most difficult of circumstances, as he rode away from Jerusalem, as he fled from Absalom, his own rebel son, who sought to steal the kingdom from him. That means that everything in this psalm describes by way of judgment what David deserved. But here are the verses of a mature believer who on the one hand knows that he's a sinner, but yet on the other hand is utterly satisfied with being in the hands of a righteous God who is also gracious and has covenant love for him. David had failed as a father. And the boil of angry resentment from within his own household had welled up right in front of him. Absalom was a mess. But he was mess caused by a mess by David himself. And messy though he might have been, David still loved the Lord and still trusted in him through thick and thin. And so we learn here from David something relevant to all of our Christian lives. Even when facing trials and temptations traced to his own failings, David rested in God his Savior, and so can you. You see, there's just no question that the Bible teaches very clearly that David was a sinner. Now, I'm not going to go from one passage to another because this is so plain a truth, so plentifully testified that there's no one here who can seriously doubt it. We could turn back a few pages to Psalm 51, and there we would hear the song of David's repentance from his sin with Bathsheba. We could turn to the historical books, to 2 Samuel chapter 12, and there we could read of David's downfall into adultery and murder and lying and deception, the covers of which were ripped off by God Himself through the prophet Nathan. You know, there's a strange irony about David's sin with Bathsheba. And the irony is, just five chapters before, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God had promised him that His throne would be eternal. God promised him that a son of His would sit on His throne forever and that He would never, ever turn His face away from that throne. That God would see to it that that son of David was also his own son. The most amazing and poignant prophecy in all of the Old Testament, the coming of the Son of God in the flesh of the Son of David. And five chapters later, in his laziness and in his arrogance, he turned his face away from the seventh commandment and then his face away from the sixth commandment, and he undid the goodness of his God and brought all into ill repute. But that was not the only occasion. We could turn to the end of 2 Samuel, to 2 Samuel chapter 24, and there we read a very short passage about a very big sin. Oh, it's not a big sin as you and I count them. It was a simple thing, really. David wanted to know, still faced and surrounded with enemies, perhaps even inspired by a nerve of concern for the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant and and for his son Solomon who would reign after him, who would build the temple and whose reign would be typical of the triumphant Christ in the new heavens and new earth. David sinned by doing what God said not to do. Not one of those big sins like like number six or number seven. It was a little thing, just taking a census. Just being an accountant. Counting the number of fighting men. There were 800,000 men with swords in Israel in the north. Five hundred thousand men with swords in the south in judah 1.3 million altogether and for that sin god gave him one of three choices oh he had 1.3 million fighting men but one angry god and god said choose door number one behind which there's seven years of famine or door number two, three months on the run from your enemies, and then it will be over. Or door number three, three days of pestilence in the land, and then it will be settled between us. Now, we have to think biblically and rightly about this vengeance of God, but we call it vengeance and There is a level and a definition by which that is true. But remember, it is vengeance, not remunerative. It is vengeance, not as a part of the wrath of God poured out as it is in hell. But it was the wrath of God poured out upon His covenant people, upon their covenant king for His disobedience. It was a representative chastisement under which David and his people would suffer. And David, still being a man after God's own heart, faced the three days of pestilence as his choice. Better, he said, to be struck by God Himself, who is full of covenant mercy and love, than to fall into the hands of our enemies and face their wrath and hatred. Oh, David chose the latter of the three courses, and so it was settled in accounts with God. But here, in Psalm 63, we are faced with David's other sin, a sin more bitter, perhaps the most deep and hurtful sin of all, because David sinned towards his own family, culminating in Absalom. Absalom. Oh, Absalom. We could turn back to Second Samuel thirteen. We could read of David's daughter Tamar and her being defrauded by Ammon and David being angry and fussing and fuming and slamming doors and not doing anything really about it. Absalom standing by and seeing his father respond like a wet dish rag to a horrible evil. He did what brothers sometimes do. He plotted. He schemed. He planned revenge. You see, Absalom was a spiritual accountant of his own and he was quite sure his father was guilty. He was quite clear that his father had sinned and he was quite happy taking into his own hands the power and the scepter of the hammer to smash that man for all of his inadequacies. Even in the face of murder within his own house, as Absalom killed Ammon for what he had done, David dithered and thereby encouraged conspiracy and rebellion against his own throne in the heart of his most, most beautiful child. David was a sinner. But God is gracious. And God was gracious towards David in his covenant love. God forgave David for his sin with Bathsheba. And for the murder which followed. And for the deception. And he did all of that because of the blood of Christ on Calvary. And God forgave David his sin in the census, his arrogance, his blindness towards the nature of God, his reliance upon numbers rather than upon the power of deity. God forgave David for his sin in the census because of the blood of Christ to come. And God forgave David his sin towards his family. He forgave him because of the blood of Christ to come. David was a sinner, but God is gracious. And His whole plan of salvation, of which David was a strategic, symbolic part, that assured the fact. God from the inside binding himself to forgive and to restore and to bless even at the cost of his own son. David would fill out the ark of his foreshadowing of the son of God even as he too learned of the pain of the loss of his own son in the face of sin and disobedience. But Psalm 63 records for us another fact. That David learned even through his disobedience and the consequences of it to trust more deeply in God. You know, it's a strange thing that God does. It's strange to the philosophers that God allows sin That the God who is true and right and holy, how can sin ever start? Where does it in God get its beginning? How can it be allowed by a sovereign and righteous God? How is it that it can invade humankind upon whom God has stamped His own image and body and soul? Why does He tolerate it? Why does He put up with it, the philosophers ask? But the believer, satisfied with the answers in Genesis and in Holy Writ, look in the mirror of their own lives and ask a deeper and more profound question. How is it that God can use sin so sinlessly as a blessing in my own Christian life? Oh, don't mistake me. I'm not arguing for the freedom to sin, that sin may abound and, and you may rejoice in your evil and so grow in spiritual things. That, that's the logic of the Gnostics and of the heretics. Not to be found here. But it's true. God uses even your own shortcomings and your own rebellion And He turns it by His sovereign power and His gracious purpose to be a blessing in your life. You know, there are young people that need to know that fact. Who come up against sin over and over and over again. Who face temptations that overwhelm them physically and emotionally and spiritually. And you need to find out that in all of your Long striving after obedience, you will find the sweetness of God in bringing humility of heart and life, even as you face temptation and danger. David, now later in his life, learns here to long for God, even under judgment. He says, O God, You are my God earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And where is he? He's in the wilderness of Judah. He's going from one pit stop to another, from one way station and well to another. He is fleeing for his life, but marching under the sovereign hand of God the whole time still longing for Him and feeling all the more deeply under the hand of judgment His need of God. Oh yes, He felt the need of Him as a Savior. But He seems here also to feel the need for His companionship, His presence, His evangelical assurance and comfort of soul and life. And He describes it via the thirst and and the parched tongue that he now possesses as he runs. Oh, my flesh faints for you. Oh, my soul thirsts for you. And he remembers. He remembers those times in the sanctuary of God in verse 3, where he beheld the power and the glory of God. There was another time when he had sinned with Bathsheba, and when God had confronted him and brought him to repentance, kicking and screaming. And where did he go? To whom did he turn when rebuked by Nathan? But he went into the sanctuary and he laid himself prostrate before his God and he prayed that God would spare the life of the child which he had ill-conceived. There... He saw the power and glory of God even as God said to him, No! No, I will not spare the life of the child. No, you will not have what you want this time. No, you will feel the pain and suffering of heart and life as you eat the fruit of your sin and you learn more deeply who I am. And as David marched away from his capital with what was left of his court, he remembers the sanctuary. He remembers the power and the awesome glory of God before whom previously he bowed And when God gave his answer, he washed his face, he combed his hair, and he went about his duties trusting and knowing God all the more. And David learned here to hide in God. Yes, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Here David speaks in very personal and intimate terms about the fact that God has let him hide under his wing. That he needs to hover and be near God. That he needs God's hand and touch and comfort. Even as he marched away from Jerusalem, and as he felt the weight of his own sin and his own rebellion in failing to deal with his son Absalom and other children are right, David at the same time and in the same moment hid his soul in God. Lying on his bed, in the night worrying and wondering, tossing and turning and and recalculating and, and rehearsing and rethinking and If I had only done this or only done that, or if I had said something stronger or something more tactful, what could have happened? David learned not to roll back and forth, but rather to satisfy his soul by hiding it in God. And David learned to trust God. Oh, there were those, in verse 9, he says, who sought to destroy his life. And he pronounces the very inspired word of God and says, they shall go down to the depths of the earth. And that doesn't mean that they get a tour of the secret cave. It doesn't mean that they go to some netherworld and hang out there in boredom. This is euphemistic Jewish language for they are going to go to hell for what they have done. And the hand of God's judgment will be upon them. And that hand is upon me in chastisement, but it will be upon them in the curse of judgment. There's a lesson here for us. There's a lesson in understanding how to live the Christian life. You see, you sin and you disobey your heavenly Father. And there are times when God in His gracious mercy deals with you quite gently in that matter. What does He do? He does what He tells you to do. Love, He tells us, covers a multitude of sins. And He overlooks most of your sins each and every day in His gracious covenant love. Oh, it sounds to us at first blush as if that's kind of a Barney thing to do and the music plays and we bounce our purple dinosaur and God is love and all is well with the world. But for God, the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable One, for God who knows all things and and knows the right thing to think about all things and... And knows what all things deserve in return. And and is bound by his own character to be holy and righteous. For him to let love cover a multitude of sins. Means that his own son must die on Calvary. And so he pays a price for turning his head and looking the other way. And then there are those few times. The minority of occasions, I dare say pastorally, those experiences through which you go where God's hand of judgment and chastisement is felt keenly by you. Those occasions where it seems as if your prayers bounce off the ceiling And he weighs you down like a ton of rocks and you crawl upon the floor. He means it only for your comfort. He means it only for your good. He is shaping, he's shaping and, and fashioning you more to look like Christ as he applies the proper pressure of chastisement to break you where you need it and to humble your heart into the dust. He does so to comfort you and to prepare you for the new heavens and new earth that you might shine all the more to His glory. He teaches you through the valley, valley of the shadow, does He not, to long in your soul for Him all the more. He teaches you in time of trouble, even trouble you deserve, to hide yourself in Him in the shadow of His wings and to trust in Him all the more for the outcome, even though you don't always know what it will be. Oh, there will be those who will stand up and will condemn you and every word they say will be right. But that is not what God chooses to do. But rather He extends the grace of His Son and He pours the blood of Jesus upon even those sins that you feel most keenly. And He washes away the stain. And He wraps you in the garments of righteousness and even praise. But the King the king who has lost his throne, the king who is being run out on a rail and is fleeing Jerusalem for his life, the king who is shamed in the eyes of all in the land around him, just that king sings, I shall rejoice in God and all who swear by Him shall exult for the mouths of the liars will be stopped. You know, the evil ones, they do what they always do. They do what they only know how to do, do they not? They mix in their bowl truth and error and they dole it out to all who will take a drink. And David marches away from Jerusalem trusting in God through thick and thin and even the thick that He has committed Himself and made. They are wrong. They should not lift up their hand in that way. They and their sin are used sinlessly to bring joy and Christ-likeness in the life of David. David learned, even through his disobedience, to trust in God. And you can too. So let me ask you, Do you seek God even when the lights go out? Let us pray. Oh, our Father and our God, we do pray that You might give us the joy and the life in Christ of David, that we might look back on our own lives and even in those valleys through which we have passed count ourselves blessed by the Lord Most High carried in covenant love through thick and thin, even of our own making on occasion. And may you set our feet in strong and joyful places that we might be ready to sing your praise forever. In the name of Christ we pray it. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.